At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com I'm Tom Rowland, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey guys, my guest today is an old friend and somebody that I've always enjoyed fishing with and talking to. This guy has a very, very positive outlook on fishing. He likes to have a good time. He has always has interesting conversations and and we've been fishing together for a long time. It has been quite a long time since we have shared a boat. I think the last time was in the Marquesas about 15 years ago. So I really had fun catching up with this guy today. He has been an industry sales rep all over the country. He's been a guide in Colorado and Alaska. He ran a mothership operation in the Sea of Cortez. And he has really fished all over the United States. And when I say that, he, ha- I mean, he has really fished probably in every state and quite extensively in quite a few of those states, particularly Western states. He's won fly fishing competitions. He's also been featured in widely acclaimed fly fishing films. And that's probably where you're going to know him. As far as fly fishing films go, this guy is as old guard as they can be. He was shooting and starring in films before the Fly Fishing Film Festival even existed. And I feel that he really has played a role in shaping that little industry of, of these films, fishing films, hunting films, and where they're going. And, and this whole Fly Fishing Film Festival, which packs the houses all over the country. So he was two of the films that, um, that he was featured in. One was called Eastern Rises. And then my personal favorite was one called Running Down the Man. And that was from Felt Soul Media. And these guys took a, a dune buggy down the Baja beaches in search of rooster fish by foot, which is already kind of a crazy thing. And then when you throw in a dune buggy and camping on the beach and trying to do this on a fly rod, makes it pretty aggro. And this looked a lot more like uh, battle than it did what most people would con- would think of fishing. I mean, these guys are doing wind sprints up and down the beach. They're running, trying to catch these fish, trying to get in front of them and making a really long cast. And it was just a very exciting thing. And they were one of the people that, that absolutely pioneered this type of fishing and showed other people that it was possible. I always think that's super cool. So recently, this guy has also been filmed in a, or featured in a new film called Dubai on the Fly. 
they go to Dubai and catch queenfish, a fish that I know just a little bit about. Very cool, and it's very cool to see the fishing and just overall activity of this basically Las Vegas on steroids out in the middle of the ocean and they're fishing all around these giant buildings and and fancy cars and the whole works. So this man's a stud and he's an all around interesting dude. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to my good friend, Frank Smethers. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. So what's up, Frank? Oh, you brought Tom, your dog. I brought my dog. I brought uh, Roxy, the the Roxy, the River Girl. That's awesome. Yeah. So, how old is Roxy? She is about one and a half. She's still really young, but she's uh, she's very well behaved. Uh, most of the time, she's well behaved. She's, she's kind of got a mind of her own. Gus is the jealous old man. You see this? I even say Roxy's name, and he comes over here and wants wants to be in the lap. Yeah, a hundred. An 87 pound chocolate lab that uh, feels like he has to be in in my space all the time. What would we uh, do without our dogs? I know. He's sweet. I know. I love dogs. So we were, uh, I was looking, because I guess it's been about 15 years since we've, since we've hung around and probably maybe even longer than that since. Um, yeah. Since, and too long since we fished. I remember the last time we fished um, you, was in the Marquesas. Do you think that was the last time? Because mm-hmm. yeah, I was, we chasing I was thinking together. about the Dolores River. And maybe you weren't on that, but I know that uh, well, no, Barchi and um, Pagano and Pagano and John Duncan uh-huh. took me and Doug Kilpatrick on a camping trip on the Dolores River. Mm-hmm. Maybe you weren't on that trip. I kind of thought you were. I would, you know, um, I was guiding. I was guiding, but I, yeah. I heard all. I, and I know you guys did well, but I was sadly not on that one. I believe that was Doug Kilpatrick's first Western experience. I don't think he had ever been out there before. And they showed us such a good time. And then Doug went on to buy a, 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 like a 
hotel out by Cody. Right. That he he goes out there every summer. I mean, it's funny how experiences like that will um, make such a big impact. I mean, I remember the first time I went out west too, and it was it was profound. I mean, just looking at the Rocky Mountains for the first time coming from the south. Um, and then if you're, imagine Doug coming from Florida and I'm pretty sure we went out there in the summertime. So it was boiling in Key West right? and step off the plane out there. And it's, you know, I mean, there's nothing better than a Rocky mountain summer. It's so awesome. Just dry and cool. Crisp and, and clear. Oh yeah. And then we just went straight camping and, uh, and fished all day, camped all, you know, that night and the, the, the sky's so clear. I just love those, those memories of that. But uh, yeah, I forgot you weren't on that. And Dolores, that river is my daughter's middle name. Nice. Because you've spent so much time there. You bet. And that's, that's also, it's, yeah, the, the Dolores, that exact camp out uh, that, that was so transformative for Doug and for you. Also, uh, that, that's where my wife and I fell in love. And uh, so that's a river that has really steered the course of my life as well. Oh, that's awesome. So how long have you been married? I've been married for a decade now. A decade? Yeah. And your daughter is nine? She is. She wow. is. Yeah. Wow. So you guys have lots of adventures. And we got, we, uh, my wife and I got married on a roosterfish beach in Baja. No kidding. So that reminds me of the movie Running Down the Man. That's, that's your, yeah, uh, yeah. I would say it's your claim to fame, but you have a lot of claims to fame. I well, mean, I, I, wouldn't put, it, it, I wouldn't just pigeonhole you into that. Well, you know, I'm, I sure am proud of that one. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. So that had to be very, very early into the Fly Fishing Film Festival or mm -hmm. maybe even before. Well, it was, uh, you know, I, I, there wasn't, it, at that point, there wasn't a tour. They were having a Fly Fishing Film Festival at the dealer shows that would happen. Mm -hmm. And Running Down the Man premiered at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival before it played at one of those festivals. Literally, my future wife was seated next to me <laughs> at the Running Down the Man premiere. Wait, you didn't know one another? We had met. We had met. She was one of my uh, best friend's sister. Yeah? Yeah. And so then that, she's like, that's you. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. She didn't, you know, she was like, oh, hey, whatever. You know, when I first sat down <laughs> and then the film starts playing and she really liked it. She turns over and she's like, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, yeah. there was a lot of humor in there. She could have said, uh, yeah, later. Well, you know, it, it, adventure fishing comedies. That's that's my thing. Yeah. Adventure fishing comedies. There there was good humor in there. So that was that was your brother. Right. Was on that. Well, you know, everybody thinks it's my brother because I was trying to I was trying to get my brother to be in that shoot because he was he, along with myself, had been going down to Baja for a long time and trying to figure out how to catch these rooster fish uh, for a long time. And the guy that's in the even though I mentioned my brother, the guy that's in the film, this wonderful, long haired guy, his name actually is Brad Ellis. Yeah. And, you know, this great friend of ours who actually lives in or lived in Baja oh. and lived on some of the beaches that we fished on. And for a long time, he couldn't catch him, couldn't catch him, couldn't catch him. And then uh, told him a couple of things and all of a sudden he could. Yeah. Yeah. So you had been down there a couple of times and decided that this might be a great film? Yeah. A long way. Ben and Travis, who, who uh, with Felt Soul, that they had made the hatch and we were very close friends from Telluride. Uh, we all lived there. So what is the hatch? 
The Hatch is a film about the Stonefly Hatch in the Black Cane of the Gunnison. And in a lot of ways, this is The Hatch was one of just a couple of films, along with Tom By's Feeding Time, that really kind of were seminal works in the beginning of, hey, let's make movies about mm-hmm. fishing or fly fishing. Right. And Running Down the Man was, was just a, a couple of years after that. But they had made that. And, you know, at the same time, we had been, I was, I was running a mothership operation in the Sea of Cortez. And I had gotten them uh, some work doing a promotional DVD for this mothership operation. And as they became familiar with the fishery and, you know, some of the stuff that went on, they started to see all of the potential for making, you know, a film about this very unusual style of fishing that really had never existed before. Right. And, and obviously I encouraged them. So if, if, if you haven't seen this movie, it is really something that you should definitely dig up. And these guys have this dune buggy, right? The yeah. dune buggy? Yeah. It's a dune buggy that they haul ass down the beach and then get out where they think there are fish or maybe you're seeing fish from the dune buggy. And then you start running up and down, mm-hmm. seeing a fish and then running to try to get in front of that fish, make trying to strip out line at the same time you're running and the surf is coming in and then you're trying to make this your longest cast ever in the history of the world. And you're stepping on the line. It's getting wrapped around the feet. The waves are pushing it in. It's de- very difficult athletic fishing. I mean, if if you are someone who believes that fishing is sitting on a dock with a bobber, and that's the only thing about fishing, this is definitely different. My favorite part of it was when you said, "That's like running wind sprints," and I haven't run wind sprints since college. <laughs> yeah, and that was a, that was actually kind of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> what since college? <laughs> yeah, that was a lie. That was a lie. But no, it's definitely a, it's a bit of decathlon, you know, style fly fishing where, you know, you've got to run to a place, you know, you have to have a sense of what your line is doing. You can't really wear footwear because you have to feel where the line is and is not, whether or not you're stepping on it. You have to have a sense of the sets in terms of the waves that are coming ashore and it but, takes some real it takes some real time to you know basically you got to throw a whole lot of junk to ultimately throw something that's even halfway relevant and because roosterfish are related to permit they're you know they're pretty difficult to fool sometimes mm-hmm. so but you're still having to throw they're probably meat eaters right i've never caught a roosterfish but oh, really? they're, they're i would have i would assume that they were a little bit kind of like a jack Revelle permit mix where exactly they have aggression I'm sure that they can be very aggressive Big when they time. want to. Yes. But they could also be a little bit shy. And they've got huge eyes. And yeah. so they've got, you know, they can really stare holes in a fly. Wow. They've got, they're, they're very discerning. They know what their food even looks there. like. Even there. Even there. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. They're not getting fish, though. They're not. And even back when they weren't, they were really hard to fool. And literally, when we started to do it, everybody was like, the only way you can catch a rooster fish is with a live bait. They don't eat plugs. They um, don't eat plugs. No, they don't eat plugs. Um, there are a couple of swim baits that work occasionally. Huh. And if you blitz, if you blitz uh, a couple of different types of surface plugs at about 25 miles an hour across the surface, you can actually fool them with that when the, yeah. sur- when the surf's up. Yeah. 
And that's the thing is this is a fish that lives in the surf and they, they ride the sets in and it's watching them work a beach in these unbelievable wolf packs is you don't realize how cooperative and how, you know, sort of clever fish can be. So you really see sort of rooster fish doing their thing right, right sh- in the right on the almost on the dry sand. Yeah. And I'm sure that there's plenty of time to be watching these fish because they're probably hovering just out of range. I mean, you could throw a fly rod a hundred feet and they're probably at 130 off the off the beach a lot. And you're watching them and running after them and running after them, and then they make that move in. Right. And that's when you have to make the cast. So they can see them so well because the rooster fish is is black and white, basically, with this giant comb coming off of the top of the of the fish. And the comb are basically these dorsal fins that look kind of like a rooster rooster's feathers almost coming off the top yeah, of the they're fish. Like plumes. And so they're black and white. And I'm sure just like a dolphin and just like everything else, they get super lit up when they get excited. Do so they ever? They're showing up as black as this couch, probably in perfectly clear water over white sand a lot of times. I describe it as it's like watching the Batmobile swim down the beach. Yeah. You know, sometimes sometimes they're hard to see. Sometimes it's, they really aren't. And it's, so, it's it, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's blatant is yeah. what it is. And so you had pioneered this, this area and kind of knew, like in, in the movie, it looks like you're just hauling ass down the beach and you kind of stop randomly. But are you, are you seeing fish? Or are you getting to an area and then you're kind of patrolling the beach up and down? What? How does it? How does it work? A little bit of both. You got to kind of, you know, my my real preference is to, you know, park the park the car and hike. You know, so a camelback is as important as our ten weight, and you know, I'll go through an entire gallon of water every single day. We'll hike you know, between five and 12 miles and just wow. walk, see what we see. That's awesome. And, you know, so it's, it, it's great. It's an amazing workout. These days, there, there are a lot of people that ride ATVs up and down the beach, which, you know, I've certainly done and will do again. But ATVs tend to really cost you a fair amount of fish because you tend to only really see the easy ones to see. Yeah. You know, you're trying to deploy off of the buggy and you just cannot do that as quickly as you can when you have your toes in the sand, you're at the water's edge, and you've got a couple coils in your hand, and you're ready to go. That's Like cool. right now. Yeah. And a lot of times it's those fish that are in the trough that you can barely see. They're only about 30 feet from you. Now those, those fish bite. They bite good? The ones that you can barely see? Yeah, well, you know. Not That's a, where the snook bite, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right there in that trough. Exactly. And, there, and, you know, Baja has uh, black snook, too. Really? Mm-hmm. That's they're, cool. You want to talk about a hard fish to catch? Black snook, I think, are the, they're right there with a the permit. They're, they're really impressively difficult. So I just saw on your Instagram that a hard fish to catch was a mullet. Well, that's the first one I ever <laughs> caught. First one I ever caught. And I don't know about you, but growing up in the South, have you thrown oh, it at yeah. you? <laughs> well, you, first, you, you know, you think there's something else. Right. And you throw at them and throw at them and throw at them until you're like, ah, oh, well, they're mullet. But sometimes they're as long as your leg almost. In, right. In some of those You've got South Carolina ponds or something, those mullet are huge. Exactly. And they they look like, oh, there's got to be a redfish or it's got to be something like that. And then it's just, it jumps out of the water and it's a mullet. But um, I don't know how to catch them. But I think that some people do. 
like on purpose. I don't know how to catch them either, but I have now caught one. And <clears throat> what's crazy is, you know, you would think that I would have gaffed it in the head or the side or <laughs> something, you know, far, it. far from fair. He not only ate it, Tom, but he, he crushed it. Yeah. He crushed it. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was this amazing shad. I was shad fishing at the time and fish jumped and I was like, okay, that's not a shad. And I'm sitting there, you know, basically you can't, you can't see a mullet jump hooked to your line. Right. And if you're, you know, if you're even halfway informed, you can't think that that's a mullet. That was, it was like, I saw that. I know it's a mullet, but that's impossible. Right. And lo and behold, I pulled it in. It was a striped mullet and it was in, it was in a freshwater river. So maybe they, you know, maybe either it, may, it was either that he was in an eaten mood because he was upriver in the fresh or, you know, he was like, well, you know, this guy, you know, throughout his youth <laughs> has, you know, has thrown 40,000 casts, you know, at mullet. So we're just going to give him, we're going to give him this one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, that's, that's funny he, because... He ate a chartreuse clouser. Really? That's a big thing for a mullet. I know, to try I swear to, to God, I couldn't believe it. It was, a sm- it was a small one, but... Yeah. Well, I've heard of people catching them. Uh, you know, it could be like the, um, the milkfish where no one catches them. For a long time until right. somebody actually decides, I'm going to really try to fish for these things. And now they've got that milkfish thing worked out. But the first time I went, uh, you know, they've, the got the, Pacific. they've got that milkfish worked out somewhere. There's a bunch of them in Baja and they, those things are impossible. Yeah. There's a well, lot they, of them in they, Baja. In the Seychelles guides um, feel like they, they can catch them. You With know, the algae got, flies. And, yeah. They've got a, a whole leader rig and they've got, you know, ways that they're going out there and catching them in different situations. And I think there's a little bit of a swing oriented with it. And, um, and you, I've looked them. have you done it? Not, I have not gone with anyone who knows how to do it. So any time. Are they, are they flossing them? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, it's possible, uh-huh. but I know that I've hooked about a half dozen of them on bonefish flies oh. and in the mouth. Right. Like, and just got wrecked by them. They, yeah. Yeah. Me that too. is a, that me is too. an amazing fish. I mean, I would say that that could possibly be if you figured out how to catch them, it could maybe be one of the better game fish around on because the they, they jump, they, they have the body type. Biggest they have t- maybe the biggest tail. tail. Yeah. yeah. They've got a tail like a marlin. I know it's, <laughs> it's massive, but you see when you're, when you're in the South Pacific fishing, you see these, um, or, or other places, I guess, where they're milk fish. We don't have them in the, in the keys or anything, but, um, the milk fish is kind of like a, a giant 50 pound mullet. Super mullet. And, you see them in these big schools, but they don't tend to eat anything except when you least expect it and you throw a bonefish fly out there. And I have had them grab it with their, with their mouth. I'm not hooking them in the side, right. you know, because they jump from me to you and I can see that the fly is right in, in the mouth. I've never had any luck landing them. I would like to. And I've never had anything run that far away, that fast greyhound. Yeah, they are. I mean, like, Three kudos put together. Yeah, they're really Gone. something. Um, but maybe, maybe somebody could figure out how to catch mullet. They wouldn't be fifty pounds, but it could have a whole cloudy day fishery in the in all over Florida. You know, right? Like if uh, right. if you figured out how to catch them and you did that on a four weight, that could be kind of fun. It would. It would be fun. Uh, you know, all fish are interesting to me, and 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 I love. You know, I love diversity. I really do. I I you know I, I definitely have. You know, some fish that I like a little bit more than others, but honestly, I love them all. I yeah. really do. Whatever, whatever I'm doing at the time 
really is is probably my favorite. But I mean, I have I have favorites. I mean, I I'll, I'll always probably put the permit up there. But in the same sentence, I could say that a bluegill is also one of my favorites. I mean, I love that, and I can I could switch from one to another immediately. You know, I could totally. I could be permit fishing and have just an awesome time, and I could go bluegill fishing and have an awesome time. And it's it's all about just the method, you know. And uh, and it doesn't always have to be fly fishing for me. I enjoy all kinds of fishing. Me too. Me too. I mean, I think people know me a little bit more as a fly fisherman. And, you know, I've definitely had some people shocked when I pick up a bait caster and, and you can flip it or pitch it. it and stuff like that. And they're like, well, you're a southern how boy. do you? How, yeah, exactly. You know, right? when you're raised in the South, if you don't know how to throw all tackle, um, uh, you know, where I grew up working, which was the fish hawk, basically wow. our motto was fly plug spin. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, that's the whole... That's the whole enchilada. That, that really gets back to, like, in the days of Lee Wolf, you saw a little bit of this with, with guys like A.J. McLean, with guys like um, uh, Zane Gray, even, maybe, mm-hmm. and then Lee Wolf. And I think it got hijacked a little bit with Ernest Schwiebert kind of mm-hmm. going the complete angler as only fly, right? Right. That, that, that the complete angler would be somebody that could fish in fresh and salt water but it was all fly. Right. Where I think that there's a, there's a move now and it's been going on for the last 20 years, but there's a little bit more of a respect, I think for some anglers that can actually do it all. And, you know, unfortunately it's a little bit more, you know, now that I'm here on the, the East bank of the Mississippi here with you, it's a little bit more East. Yeah. Um, out West, it's still, you know, like a fly, a fly shop. Uh, typically has no other gear in it. Right, right, right. And the same here, I think, too. But I think that you're having those anglers that are going in that fly shop, and then they're going to Bass Pro, and they're getting their stuff there, and then they're going right. somewhere else and and doing other kinds of fishing. I mean, they might... I think that certainly technology has helped a lot with the internet and being able to find different guides mm-hmm. easily. Like you can, Like, you could find a musky guide and then you could go striper fishing, and then you could run over to the coast and go red fishing, and then you could go uh, get on an airplane and you know go somewhere and tuna fish offshore, and then you can get on an airplane. But that technology, I think, you know, the airplanes have been there, the cars have been there, but what what wasn't there for a long time was the the information yeah. of where you would need to go and the ability to contact somebody. Like Instagram's good for that. Like you see what all these people are catching and you just send them a message like, man, that looks cool. I'd like to do that. Okay. How about Thursday? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess. I mean, that sounds really it's cool. Off. But, but, but in the days before the internet, that was impossible. Yeah. I mean, what would you do? You'd, you'd have to pick up a phone and well, call or you, somebody. Or yeah, you'd, you'd wait for some article to come out when I, you know, when I was little, I'd read cover to cover all field and streams, all, all sports of field, all outdoor life. And you know, sometimes there would be some numbers for guides in there, right. you know, or it would be in the back and you know, you'd have to do all sorts of kind of random detective work. And when I was a little kid, I started working at a fly shop when I was 12. What, the fish hawk? At the fish hawk, yeah. Really? I, was, I was tying commercial flies when I was 12 and yeah, I had a guy catch a 160 pounder uh, tarpon at Homo Sassum, one of my flies. Oh, really? On a cockroach nice. uh, when I was uh, 13. So that was, that was pretty... Uh, that was a great experience, but that was a great place for keeping my fishing really well-rounded. The neat thing about Georgia, and for that matter, the Southeast, is that we 
we really have this crazy mix of fresh and salt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Georgia, we can catch 10-pound trout and 100-pound tarpon, you know, just hours apart from one another. No kidding. Yeah. Um, And they're both wild fish. It was a great and complete education. So you started working at the Fish Hawk, which is probably the best fly shop in the Southeast. It's still the biggest fly shop uh, for a lot of manufacturers east of the Mississippi. It really stood the test of time. I mean, yeah. as other as mm-hmm. other shops have closed down, Gary has been able to, Gary Merriman owns that shop and has just done an amazing job always of, of being first class all the way and offering really good service. But in a day where lots of fly shops have trouble keeping the doors open because of the internet probably and mm-hmm. lots of other reasons. Changing retail. He's managed to just keep keep chugging, right? Well, you know, that's one great thing about the South. The South really respects tradition. Yeah. That's, that is, you know, the fish hawks is Southern as Coca-Cola. Well, it definitely is. But I think a lot of, I think a lot of um, fly shops these days have a, have a hard time because while the South might uh, respect tradition, new anglers don't necessarily understand what life is like if you don't have a fly shop that you can go to. And so one guy that I talked to was saying that, you know, he has a real hard time when people are coming in and they try all his rods and then they walk out and they buy it for the lowest price on the internet. And then they wonder why the shop closed down because I mean, they got to keep the doors open somehow. Like you got to support that local guy. Well, and you know, and I think that, you know, it's, it's tempting to think that with fly fishing, you can kind of YouTube your way through it. And the reality is, is that it's still, to me, it's still very much a mentorship thing. And in the long run, you'll save a lot more money and become a better fisherman if you know somebody, if you're able to, along with another, the rest of a community, support a fly shop that has some real deal people in it that you know, really live it and have lived it for a long time and pass along that mentorship to you, uh, that, that's what worked for me. That's what right. helped me become a guide. And So how did that work with you growing up in, in Atlanta mm-hmm. and ending up working at the Fishhawk at 12? Mm-hmm. How, how does that happen? You know, Gary had a long tradition of hiring shop kids. Yeah, but how did you even become a kid that was interested in doing that? First oh, of all, was, working at 12 is pretty remarkable. Oh, I wanted to work there when I was eight. Well, and, because, and basically you, were, because I bought, you have a history of fishing in your family or no, what? No, no, I, I didn't have a history of fishing in my immediate family. My grandfather was, whom I never met, he died before I was born. He was uh, an amazing fly fisherman, an upland bird hunter, mm-hmm. and he died before I was born. And it skipped a generation. And his children, my mom and my uncles, did not fish. Uh, Not really. You know, basically, when I was one, when I was two, my parents and my babysitters and stuff like that noticed that as soon as they got me on the dock with a line, you know, at that point, a hand line in my (laughs) hand, I would behave. Anything shy of that? Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and it just continued to escalate. And my, you know, my parents immediately saw that my draw for, you know, the ocean. I did all of my first fishing in the ocean when I was a kid. Uh, and this was really trolling for mackerel hmm. uh, when we would and visit what, what the family part, in Maine. where would you go? To Maine? In Maine. Wow, yeah. because when you said that, I would think like uh, the 30A. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, um, my, my, so I'm, I'm half, 
half Yankee and I'm half redneck. That's what's wrong with you. Exactly. No, it's confusing. <laughs> You're conflicted. It's confusing for everybody. You've been conflicted your whole life. My whole life. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and you know, in Atlanta, everybody's like, you know, you talk like a Yankee. And then, you know, I have a couple of beers in Colorado and I start saying y'all all the time and stuff like that. <laughs> and they're like, man, where are you from? All over. So, yeah, exactly. So it, it is confusing. But my mom, my mom's family, uh, we visited them and spent time in Maine with them. And we would go out in rowboats and row around Penobscot Bay, trolling green linen hand lines with a daredevil typically uh, wow. tied on and just rope these Atlantic mackerel. And then from time to time, we would drop clams and mussels on hooks over the side and catch flounder, you know, as big as wow. a doormat. And, uh, you know, it would be a pretty good dinner with some lobster up there and some flounder. I'm, and mussels that we would pick on the shore, right. and clams that we would dig. Yeah, we had, we had some clam bakes, Tom, that would absolutely floor now, uh, the when, modern When you're talking about a clam bake, is that like, I see in the in the movies for the Northeast where you get the fire on the beach and mm -hmm. you, you do the whole you do the whole gig. Giant black, you know, kind of kettle with yeah. the white specks. You know, this beautiful sort of earthenware. You layer the different types of shellfish and food in between layers of seaweed. Oh wow! And you know, you cook it in brine with seasonings. You know, lots of bay leaves and peppercorns and all kinds of different stuff that all of the different relatives would bring. And, you know, and back then the, the crazy Smethursts were the only ones who ate mussels. Yeah. You know, everybody else would eat clams, but they're like, ooh, mussels, no. And we were like, ooh, mussels, right on. Yeah. And we would, you know, and we would, you know, that we used to shock our relatives by breaking sea urchins on the beach and eating their roe raw. Yeah, that was my aunts and uncles. Still, I think that freaked them out until the advent of sushi bars. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you were on the cutting edge then. You know, that was my mom. That was my mom. My mom. How does uh, she know how to do that? I don't know. How does she know how to do all the stuff she knows how to do? She, uh, you know, she, uh, mom was ahead of the curve her whole life. That seems like there would yeah. be some Asian heritage there or something. Right. Exactly. That would, exactly. And that and, would even lend you to the idea that you could eat a sea urchin. Right. And, and, you know, and I remember, you know, we were tiny and it was just like, Hey, that's really good. Yeah. And until I had some shad roe just the other day, it was my favorite. Hmm. Now, yeah, more of those shad. Yeah, they're going to need to die soon. <laughs> and the shad, um, where were you doing that? Well, that's classified, Tom. Okay. But I was, it was gotcha. on a, I was on a river in Georgia. And, uh, you know, and I, I went on spec uh, to a place that I thought might have some. And, you know, I didn't catch many, but I caught a few. Caught that mullet. And I was catching them on spay rod and, you know, it was super fun and super beautiful. Those, you know, once you get to the coastal plain of Georgia, you're talking about all of these sort of forgotten fisheries. Yeah. You know, everybody drives right by them on the way to go catch redfish and bluefish and sea trout and stuff like that in quite muddy water. And on the way, they're driving past all these gin clear, they're, they're slightly tea colored, tannin colored uh, rivers that are spectacular as they flow and wow. wind through the cypress country so of the south. So do you south. float that or do you... Yeah, I took my dory. Yeah. I took my dory and, you know, basically it's... You can't find them just anywhere, but, you know, you find a big shoal and then you look for kind of that froggy water huh. at the bottom and they're right on the... Kind of right on the seam yeah. as it goes into what the frog. what fly do you use? You know, uh, I was using all these shad flies from... Uh, I'd, I'd caught them on the sack with some friends uh, out west and they loved orange. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I was just 
beating the crap out of them with orange and then with red and white and all these shad flies, quote unquote, that are supposed to work. And, uh, you know, in true Southern fashion, those fish wouldn't touch anything I threw until I pulled out that one chartreuse fly that I had. So it was the, these shad it could... chartreuse, it ain't no use. These shad could not have been better Southerners. <laughs> so I really cool. appreciated that. And they taught, you know, they taught me something uh, wonderful. So getting back to this, so you, you go up to Maine and you're catching fish with your family and stuff, even though it skipped a generation. And then you bring this back just as a, as a grammar school kid and just sitting in class daydreaming about fishing all the time. Cause all that's, too often that's what I did a lot. <laughs> did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. take me away. I can't really say that I was all that good in school. I think I did dream a lot about who knows what. But fishing was definitely part of it um, growing up. I think I got the bug a little later, like really at like 17, maybe <laughs> like really got into it. But um, my dad always took me fishing early when I was a kid and I loved it. And that was my favorite thing to do with him. But I don't know. I did a lot of daydreaming in, in school. Did you? I did. I did, especially, you know, in the South that you get these unbelievable downpours. And as soon as I could hear the sound of water, you know, flowing outside or on the window pane, I would just basically lapse into a daydream that, <laughs> you know, no lecture, no presentation uh, on the teacher's behalf could cut through. Right. It was that it was over. It was over. And so do, do your parents see this and kind of nurture it and say, maybe you wouldn't need a job at the, at the fly shop or something. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what, that's exactly what happened. My, uh, my father, uh, had, had in secret one year built us a couple of fly rods, my brother and I, a couple of, uh, Fenwick, uh, glass rods, which this mm. kind of dates me. Back in the day. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Fenwick that, glass rods. Yeah. Not only Fenwick glass rods, but orange. Yellow yeah. Fenwick glass Well, rods. I had my, that was my favorite uh, spinning rod of my dad's. I could right. touch, I could use any rod except that one. So that's right. the only one I wanted to right. use. And it was the yellow Fenwick spinning rod. And, and, you know, and that's all I would use for a long time was Fenwick and Fenwick only. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, yeah, my friends in high school called me Professor Fenwick. Because <laughs> that's another story. Because, you know, I was just so into the fishing and they were just like, man, can't you focus where, you know, because I did a lot of other stuff. I played soccer and all this other stuff, but uh, it didn't take much for me to somehow work the the subject and the idea back to fishing. So do you remember going into the fish hawk and, and asking for a job? Yeah. My dad had built these rods and had mentioned to them that, you know, hey, he had this kid and they, they knew who I was at that point because we would go in on Saturdays and just look at all the tackle and walk around. And that was like our favorite thing to do was walk around the fish hawk. Mm -hmm. Yo, dad, can we go to like, dad would take us to church and be like, well, we'll go if we can go to the fish hawk afterwards <laughs> or, you know, this or that. It was all, everything we did was like, well, I'll take you to the fish hawk. For other kids, it was like, I'll take you to get some ice cream. Right. Like, mm, I don't know. Uh, how about we go to the fish hawk? Yeah. He'd be like, oh, okay. Uh, typically the fish hawk was a little bit more expensive for dad. Yeah. Than, than yeah. That's not really an ice cream cone. No, no. It, especially it, back then when, when a, a rod was man, it was hard to come by. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ultimately, I collected some Kennedy Fisher spinning rods, and you know, I had all kinds of cool stuff uh, that I got by hook or crook, and uh, you know, good behavior, or sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyhow, Dad mentioned to them that young Frank would would be a pretty decent employee, and 
though skeptical, Gary uh, gave me a shot and I worked there until I went to college. Wow. Yeah. And I still would come back and put in the odd shift there, you know, even throughout the time I was guiding in the West and, you know, just always it was, it it continues to be sort of an Atlanta touchstone and family. Where did you go to college? I went to, I went to, uh, to a variety of places. Actually, I went to, I went to Georgia state for a while in downtown Atlanta and I went to the university of Oregon for a summer in Eugene. And that's really what convinced me that I, I really needed to uh-huh. live in the How West. How did you get out there? How did you decide that you were going to do that from Georgia State to I needed a I needed a school that was near trout fishing and potentially steelhead. Yeah. So that uh, I could get credit and steelhead at the same time. Nice. And Had universe- you ever caught a steelhead? No. It's just a dream. No, but it needed to happen. And yeah. It, and it did. And it, that and the West all in the same summer were transformative for yeah. me. And I would, you know, I would go to class all day and then I'd hop on my mountain bike and ride 15 miles to the Mackenzie and I would catch these ins- incredible red side rainbows and native sea run cuts out of the Mackenzie. Literally every day I'd walk through these beautiful wheat fields, kind of poaching. A, <laughs> I'm not sure if I was, tra- actually I'm pretty sure I was trespassing. I meant no harm and I didn't kill any fish. But I literally fished there every single possible day. And throughout my education, I ended up graduating from the University of Georgia with a journalism degree in radio, TV, film, ironically. And, you know, I fished, you know, pretty continuously uh, through school there and fished the white bass runs Mm. for, of course, largemouth. Now, when when you move back, are you just... uh dying to be back out west or are you pretty happy back in the south i was you know i would say some of both but you know as soon as i as soon as i encountered the west the clock was kind of ticking and yeah. it was calling me back you know just all of the all of the freedom and you know just the call of all that sort of tumbling clear water um was really a big siren song for me and ironically i just i didn't really know my southern countryside well enough to have encountered some of the similar type waterways here. And, you know, and ironically, I come back here now and I see so many incredible yeah. things now that I'm better versed and uh, sort of along the lines of the flow of information. Right. You know, I'm suddenly way hipper to all of the amazing fishing around here or some of it anyhow than I was when I was growing up. So I, I had to go out west to learn to be a better fisherman and a better searcher. And I came back when I, now that I'm back for a little while now, it's kind of a revelation. Yeah. And at times I'm, I look around and I go, God. There's quite a bit of, of fishing that I didn't know anything about. Stripers, mm-hmm. muskie, the red eye bass and the shoal bass, yeah. all of that. And then the, the giant trout. I mean, yeah. all I knew were little trout. And right? don't forget, you know, the weird fish like shad and bowfin. And right. The bowfin. Bowfin's that thing a sleeper. Is, is, Cool. And carp. Yeah. Carp. There's a, uh, I would consider it to be undiscovered fishery here because I've rarely see anybody fishing for carp in the Tennessee area, but I see the carp and right. I know that they're bow fishing for them all the time. Right. So I'm thinking, well, if they're up there, they can see them. You should be able to catch them. Yeah. The, you know, the, the carp in my experience back here, they eat so many mussels 
they're a little bit, it's a little bit more like a cow and less like a predator. Yeah. So they're more of a grazer. Yeah, but you could probably figure it out. Yeah. Right? yeah I'm sure you can convince them here and there. They just, in my experience, they've been a tougher sell than the carp that I run into farther west. And so where there, where there are less you know, shellfish. You know a little bit about that, the carp fishing out west? Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, I've been, uh, I've been fishing for them for a while after getting kind of coerced into it by some friends who were like, no, man, you got to try it. And I was like, oh, I don't want to fish for those <laughs> stinky, stinky, slimy things. You know, I could not have been more wrong. Um, carp, you know, they are, I'm right about them being stinky and slimy, but they take, <laughs> they take a lot of talent to catch. And the reality is, is that if you can routinely catch a carp, say in the, you know, downtown Denver, South Platte, you have a shot in the Keys. Yeah. If you can't uh, keep working on it, uh, because they're an incredibly instructive right. quarry. Well, if nothing else, it gives you something to do in the off time of the of the trout fishing and and other things. And if you are planning on going down to the Keys, I'm sure that 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 would would um, be incredibly valuable. But the carp is a is a good fish on its own. Yeah. I mean, it's a spooky fish. Yes, it's picky, and then it fights hard. It, know, does. Like it does. It does. And it gets really big. And, you know, the thing that I like about them is, is <clears throat> they really teach you to read a fish's body language, mm-hmm. you know, in slower motion. Like it doesn't happen as quick as tarpon and bones. So you can sort of get an inference of what you're looking for in terms of body attitude changing and sort of pectorals moving and dorsals uh, or pectorals flaring and dorsals sort of raising and lowering and yeah. stuff like that that's telling you that you're either, you know, some, somewhere uh, near or far away from uh, interesting them. So, you know, I, I like them. And we actually have a carp tournament in uh, in Denver. And, and when, I was a, when I was a rep, uh, we sponsored this big thing. It's called, called the Carp Slam. It's been going for 10 years now. And uh, I haven't done so well in the last few, but I wanted a a while back. Nice. So are those uh, like crayfish patterns or? Yeah. By the time they have it, it's like in late summer. So all the crayfish are molting. Yeah. And so you use, you know, kind of a small crayfish pattern. Uh, Sometimes some worm patterns. uh, Sometimes some damselish, dragonfly, nymphish type stuff. Um, Lately, you know, word on the street is that this one guy who's just beating everybody the last three or four years is using some mop flies. Cranes, really? yeah, huh. stuff like that. Oh, huh. well, that's there's that's some, cool. There's there's take, some it takes somebody. Ops. It takes somebody to to try some different stuff to to really change the game. I'm waiting for that to happen on permit fishing um, because it. While yeah, it's gotten yeah, a little bit yeah, better. Well, yeah, we haven't thank had you for bringing that up. Massive... By the way, I need to ask you about permit. <laughs> yeah, well, I've caught a few of them, but man, have I not caught a lot of those you, fish? Oh, yeah, join the club. Like mostly, mostly you catch none on fly. But a but, but a crab is a live crab is such an amazing layup. Do you fish with them? Oh, I've, I've, yeah. Do you I've, do that? Yeah. Because yeah. how does that? It, it, does it not work well, ever? No, we, do you yeah. have permit no, refused no, no, live no. crab? There, there are definitely days where where they they refuse a live crab, and there are definitely lots and lots of situations where you have a crab that has been on the hook too long. Your your client left it out of the water. Uh-huh. It's sitting on the deck. It's really weak. It's barely moving. And they don't eat that just like they don't eat a fly. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. And so I always talk to these people, um, particularly fly fishermen, who have never thrown a crab. And I know exactly what that's like because when I went to the Keys, I was absolutely dead set, 100% determined that I was going to catch my first permit 
on a fly, and there was going to be no exception to that. And I was not interested in any any argument to try to to try to dissuade me from that. That was what was going to happen, and <laughs> that's what happened. But very in hindsight, yeah. in hindsight, I look at it and I think, man, it took me a year of fishing every day. And when I say every day, if, if it wasn't blowing 40, then right. I was out there and I'm out there by myself trying to fish out of a skiff, trying to fly fish out of a skiff, which is really, really hard to do because the permit is a very spooky fish. You go from the back of the boat where you're polling, you get off the tower. And if you're, if you're quiet enough and you're careful enough and you put the pole down without making any noise, you've taken your eye off the fish. Now you look up and most of the time the fish is gone and right. oh, it's right under the boat and now it's now it's exploded. Yeah. Oh, and that was fun. Yeah. And so now you're back <laughs> up on the tower and pushing down the thing again, pushing down the flat again. And then on the occasion that you would get everything set up right, you make your shot. Well, I didn't know enough about the fish to know where the right. shot should have been. I didn't know enough about the fish to see like what you were talking about, about the carp of, okay, there's a body position change. The, the pectorals flared. This happened. Any, any kind of a, 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 an indication that the fish was interested in that fly. I'm just throwing out there and hoping for the best, right? right? And I think most people are, honestly, that haven't caught a lot of permit. And I think that if I had started fishing with crabs earlier, I would have caught one. I would have knocked six, eight months off of that. I would have caught or, one or on more. fly way, way earlier. And I love fishing with crabs. I love it because I love the permit so much that I don't want to just catch 50 of them a year. Totally. Like I want to catch 500 of them a year or a thousand a year. I don't want to catch 50 a year. That's not enough. And what I found is that you can catch them on crabs and while you're doing that, you're learning about fly fishing for them. And I think that you'll see the best permit guides in the Keys, like a Mark Croca. Right. He catches few on fly, but he can win the he can win the fly tournament. I mean, he he will be he will be one of the of the top guides going into the fly tournament every single year. He would probably prefer to catch them on crabs, but he just knows so much about that fish and he knows every little body movement, every, every posture change of that fish to know if he's interested, if he even saw the fly, what happens. But I think the interesting thing about crabs and permit and fly fishing for permit is that a lot of people have this opinion that if you just put crab juice on the fly, that they would just jump in the boat. Right. And it's not like that at all because we fish all these tournaments, uh, like the Red Bone down there, where where in the Keys it's or in the in Key West it's the Slam tournament. So it's permit bonefish and tarpon. You're trying to put together those three fish in a, in that combination, and then and the uh, the Bay Bone for a long time it was permit and bonefish, and so you're trying to catch those two fish. And you have a hundred of the best anglers and the best guides right. in the Florida Keys, maybe in the world, and most of them are throwing crabs, and you just see the number of of fish that come in. And it's, it's not, you know, 700, right, it's not right. like everybody went out there and caught seven. It's, you know, 40 maybe really like, yeah. Really? And so depending on the conditions, it's very tough. But if you can get a crab that is super lively, super aggressive, and you put that on the hook and you hear the, the legs clicking. I was right? about to ask you, you is, that a, that. is that a click thing? A hundred percent. Okay. And so if someone were to ask me, okay. 
uh, your life depends on it. You can have <laughs> scent or you can have motion. Which would you rather have? And I'll take motion every time right. because I don't really think that a what live about, crab. What about sound? Do you like sound, the, do you like the definitely. click? Definitely. I think that I think that makes a huge difference. And if you ever go snorkeling on the flats or right. snorkeling it's amazing. anywhere, the cacophony there's sound of clicks everywhere, yeah. everywhere. And you mm-hmm. look at the permit's side of his head; he's got a giant hole in his head that has to be, you know, an ear, and he's got this lateral line, and he's right. got these all these ways that he is sensing everything that's around him. And I just have thrown thousands or have had thousands of people throw dead crabs or partially dead crabs to permit. And they look at it exactly like they do a well-tied merkin. No kidding. Like, eh, well, not really what I want. Well, let me, let me ask you this. You know, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, and you and I were on a, you, you and I were on the west side of the Marquesas or uh, southwest side of the Marquesas and we were in some permit. And you told me, you were like, look, I want you to, Cram that fly right into their face. And if yeah. you spook them, right on. And if they're swimming away from you, I think the second best place for you to throw the fly, Frank, is to throw it at their tail. Do you Can still be. feel that way? Well, I, I probably felt that way. You know, I mean, permit fishing is, as a, as a guide for permit fishing, you know, you really have so few. I mean, it's not like being a bass fishing guide where you're going out and catching 50 in a day. I mean, uh, the best guide in the Keys is catching 50 or 60 a year for all of his clients combined. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depending on whatever happened the week before, it kind of always depended right. on what, or, or was kind of what I was telling people the next week, because all of a sudden, if you threw it in, in their face and they ate it, great, that worked. If you threw it on their tail and they wheeled around and ate it again, that worked. Because I've seen that might, happen a couple of times. Yeah, then, of course, you might have a couple of dry weeks where you're like, nah, don't throw it on their tail. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, last time I was here, you told me to throw it on their tail. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, I forget about, about that guy. Um, but I do know that um, if you, like, the reason that we like to, to throw it right in their face was because we felt like the only way that that fly, even if it's a super well-tied fly, the only way that it really looked anything like a live crab was when it was diving to the bottom. Right. Because there was that motion. And, and a real live crab, that's the other thing, man, is that if you don't fish with live crabs often or you don't accidentally pick one up out of the live well and it shoots out of your hand and hits the water and you try to catch it and it swims away like a fish, like it is amazingly fast. A perfectly it, healthy are. blue crab is amazingly fast. And you can't catch it in the water. I mean, it's like a fish. Totally. And so that thing is Especially shooting when they to the go bottom. sideways. Yeah. And it's shooting to the bottom. And that's what a permit, you know, the, the most success I've had with permit is throwing it in there and it goes right to the bottom and the permit goes over, tails on it and eats it. I mean, all of the stripping and trying to make it, you know, like a bonefish, that works really, really well with a bonefish to try to animate that fly. And they think, oh, shrimp, I like that. I just haven't had the same success with permit. And I think a lot of that is due to the place where we fish for them, particularly where I was fishing for them over turtle grass. And now you start stripping and you're catching the turtle grass and it's pulling the turtle grass in a, in a strange way that the fish isn't used to seeing and it freaks them out and they take off. But like we were talking about with this, with the mop fly and the, and the carp, I mean, there are a lot of permit guides that are trying all different types of flies and techniques for the permit, but we still haven't had the breakthrough. Now, there's somebody out there that's going to be like, my ass, 
I'm catching way more than you ever caught. Well, maybe that's true, but you're still not catching as many as we catch bonefish. Have like, you, you know, for for example, have you have you like tried anything like the Avalon fly in the keys? Yeah, the, I mean, I've kind of the clicker. That. I like the idea of the click. It's not yeah. a very appealing fly otherwise. Yeah, the it looks click, a little contrived. I think the click is 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 very important. Me too. I, I think it's really important. Now, is that Avalon that goes to the Cuba? Is that the yeah. Cuban fly? Yeah, it's like the four beads on the on the kind of the weed yeah. guard. Understand. So Clay Watson was just on on the podcast not too long ago, and he just went to Cuba and fished with those guys. And another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He didn't have very good weather, so he didn't really have a good chance. But I'm familiar with that fly, and we've certainly tried it. But the clicking that happens with, with a live blue crab is, it's more like clapping your hands, like, like a lot of clicking. Like that, I don't know that you could, it would need to be like a mechanical clicker. Put like a little, I'm going to get like a little stereophonic. I'm going to put a little boom box inside the next fly tie. It's one thing to do that. And you're like, okay, well, we're going to really push fly tying to the edge. Well, there are lures out there that right. look exactly like a crab. They look, they are a molded crab. Right. I've seen And them. you throw them out there and the permit looks at them and goes, nah. Really? And then there's, then there are things like the, um, the uh, uh, what's that stuff? The Berkeley um, the gulp? scented gulp. Yeah, and they have gulp crabs. I've seen those. And have they you work thrown them? Awesome for redfish. Right. So good for redfish. They're the best ever. But you throw them at, at permit, and they're like, meh. Really? It's okay. Really? And it's got the scent on it, so it's not. I don't know that it's that the scent is is that important. Although, <laughs> on our last shoot. Uh, it's so funny with permit. Like everything you say gets contradicted about a week later. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and as soon as you think you've got it a hundred percent nailed, the tea leaves then, change. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I take whatever I, I say with a grain of salt, because, uh, not that anybody listening wouldn't take everything I say with a grain of salt. I hope you would, but we go down to uh, film our last, our last shoot and it's right after the hurricane. And so we're at, uh, at Hawks K and there are a big, group of of permit and we had caught tarpon in the morning and so then we catch a, a couple permit where they're supposed to be in this channel and there's some buoys around and and so we're fishing with jeff malone and we catch one of those and so we think okay well let's go get our bonefish so that we have a couple hours of sunlight left so we run over to the resort flat where they're always bonefish and oh those we're just fish going are hard to, in just, tom's harbor yeah exactly Dude, those yeah. fish are they uncool. can be they can be but they respond very well to chum Right. So we don't care. I mean, we're yeah. just trying to get a slam and it's after the hurricane and we're just checking on things like do bonefish still exist? I mean, did they right. get miraculously taken up like uh, like um, in the Wizard of Oz? Did they all disappear? And so we go over there and we start chopping up a few shrimp and uh, and Jeff Malone throws a jig out there. And within, I don't know, 15 seconds, he hooks a fish and he goes, I think that was a permit. And uh, sure enough, he catches a permit. Then I throw a, a shrimp out there and I'm waiting for a bonefish. The rod goes down, just like it always does, permit. Then Rich catches a permit, same dip, same wheel deal. So we catch three permit right there. So now I'm thinking, well, I'm saying, I don't think scent is such a big deal, but 
we throw out a few shrimp and we catch three permits. So that's amazing. I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, that's a special area right around there too. You know, yeah. I used to stay at on duck Yeah. and, uh, that whole, you know, it's very permity and you just never know. Well, it, it's a special gonna, area what, too, because you've got the, you got the flat right there where there are plenty of bonefish. There's lots of permit there and there's lots of permit all around duck key, but then you have the tarpon migration in there. And it is probably in my experience, if I were going, if I had a canoe and I was going to try to get a slam, probably right there. Yeah. Because literally mm -hmm. you could go a hundred yards and you could be in bonefish and permit and tarpon. And there are, you know, there are other places kind of similar, but that to me is like the most compressed little slam hole. Yeah. Like it's you true. could, you could catch a slam right there really easy. And the slam is the permit bonefish tarpon all in one day. And a lot of people think that's, that's, um, you know, the be all end all of fishing and it, and it is really super cool, but that, that duck key area is, is good. So I guess we were talking about, do I really, uh, still feel like if you don't throw it in their face, then throw it on their tail. I've had good success with that, mm -hmm. but it could be all different next week. I, I just, I just really don't, don't know. If, I mean, you, you, just if you haven't spooked them, would you go right back into their face with yeah. the fly? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For sure. If he's if swimming can, away and you're in your, he's going out of your range. Yeah, ideally, go, if ideally, you could choose between over their shoulder or at their tail. Well, I used to, I, I, I used to really like the over the shoulder shot because they're swimming away, and this is not a good uh, percentage shot on bonefish or on uh, tarpon necessarily, because typically with both of those fish, you need to move the fly to get them to see that it's something that they might want to eat. So if you throw it over the tarpon shoulder and then you pull it straight at them, that's about a 99.9% .9 chance that you're going to totally freak that fish out right. and he's going to leave as fast as a fish can swim. Bonefish also, if you can do that, sometimes you can get the fish to eat it like that, but just by barely moving the fly at all, I mean, like just giving it a little breath of life, that works. But I always kind of like the permit over the shoulder and just kind of put the fly line on his dorsal fin and let the fly unroll out in front and then don't move it because they look up and they don't see a boat like they normally do. They're looking away from you. And if they see that, they go down and, and eat it like that. And we've had, we've had good success like that too. It's, but perf preferably I, w I don't want any fish swimming away from me. I would rather like the permit be coming from the left to right. You throw in here, it passes over the fly without seeing it. You just gently strip it in. Now you make another cast here and swims over the fly again. And that continues on and on and on until you don't catch him. Yeah, seen that. <laughs> seen that. <laughs> that drill unfold. It took me, you know, it took me a long time of fishing in the Keys. Long time after the last time you and I fished, um, I stopped chasing them for a while and really got off on this rooster fish tangent. And then I finally went back down uh, to the Keys for the first time and got to be 10 or 15 years and uh, finally caught a really nice permit nice. in the Keys. You know, I was fishing with uh, Captain Shane Smith, really good friend of mine. Uh, down on, uh, we were, you know, not too far from Sugarloaf, I suppose. And uh, anyhow, it was really, you know, they're everything they're cracked up to be. Yeah, I've caught them in Yucatan and stuff like that a little bit more easily. But yeah, those keys permitted on a flyer really special. Yeah, I like them on anything. I mean, I'll, I'll catch them on a flyer, on a on a crab, whatever. I just I just like where they are, what they do, kind of places that they take you, and and the 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 whole experience of it. So you also did something else recently that was interesting to me is that you 
did another movie, right? Well, you know, I've I've done I've done a few. I did, you know, I did another one after running down the man that in in a lot of ways was uh was even better and that was when we went to uh Kamchatka. Okay. It was called Eastern Rises and it's the most acclaimed fishing film that's ever been made. Wow. It won the top award at the Banff Mountain Film Festival and uh there was, you know, it was it was during the time when I I left the country despite the fact that my wife was pregnant oh. with our daughter. <laughs> and, you know, and ultimately uh, uh, my daughter has a little brief cameo in the film. So, you know, that was super meaningful. And, you know, and I, I did actually a, a film uh, after that uh, on CARP. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, and just recently I did one. What was the uh, CARP one called? CARPland. Okay. Carpland. Was that in the film festival? Yeah. 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 And, you know, it was that that was just a small part uh, in that one, but it was about uh, sort of fishing in downtown Denver for carp. And what's interesting is throughout the Rocky Mountain West, with all the other amazing fish that are around, including pike and bass and all this stuff, carp has carp have very quickly become the second most popular game fish yeah. behind trout. Throughout the Rocky Mountain West, to the point where you know, as reps, we were selling, you know, lots of seven weights and lots of carp flies wow. and lots of, you know, carp stuff. That that there was a book. Who who who's that that wrote that book? A Western guy, Barry Reynolds. Yeah, Barry Reynolds. I uh, read carp his on book. the fly. I, I I've got his book upstairs, mm-hmm. and uh, that had to help a little bit to to kind Big of time. justify the sport because he's a he, you know he's a he's a reputable very, author very and, and uh, he's in that carp slam every year too. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I continue to make adventure fishing comedies, uh, you know, in my spare time when I'm not. So not any out more on the before water. the Dubai? Um, uh, you know, there was definitely some some great humor in the in the carp film, tremendous humor in in Eastern Rises, but the uh, Dubai the Dubai film had definitely has its moments. I think it's the longer version of this film, which is not in the film tour. Uh, is going to be a lot funnier than so the I love how you one. I love how you define uh, success as the amount of humor that appears well, in a fly fishing film. Well, to me, you know, to me, Tom, <laughs> it's really important because it's really important because I feel very strongly that you know a big part of what draws us to the water with our friends and our family is the the ability to get together and observe things that make us laugh. Uh, whether it's each other, um, you know, take a moment to, you know, occasionally laugh at ourselves. You know, here we are with all this equipment chasing a fish sometimes <laughs> only to only to turn it loose. You know, there's just, to me, you know, fishing is in some ways a great setup for humor. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in my opinion, if you are fishing and you're out in the boat and you're not laughing periodically, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people take it way too seriously. Totally. Yeah. way too seriously yeah. when in fact yeah i think you're i think you're right i mean some of the greatest memories some of the greatest laughs that that i can remember are just days guiding just just out there and the crazy things that people say and then the stuff they start talking about and the next thing you know you're trying to figure out if they're if 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 the thing you saw in the woods was really bigfoot 
or <laughs> you know, just one thing after another, and you just have these crazy conversations. And as a fishing guide, you're having these crazy conversations with like the CEO of the fourth largest company, and and he's just a regular guy, right? And you're talking about Bigfoot for three hours, yeah, and it's hilarious and so fun. And uh, but but I do like that about, and I've always liked that about what you got going on is that is that. You don't you don't take it too seriously. You like to have fun, and I loved that about your um, hosting on TU uh, on the mm-hmm. the Trout Unlimited show. So you yeah, were the yeah. host of that for how long? Uh, you know, I produced and hosted that for I think thirty nine episodes. That was a tremendous experience. You know, I'm I'm honestly not as well traveled internationally as as uh, as people think. But I, I, you know, I'm I'm very proud of all the travels that I've I've had domestically, mm-hmm. thanks to that show. You know, I was able to fish everywhere from, you know, Long Island. Believe it or not, Long Island has some of the most beautiful spring creeks you've ever seen. Wow! The, do you know the biggest brook trout in the world all come from Long Island? I didn't know that. Daniel Webster, a little further north in Nova Scotia, it's really they, hot. But no, they were way bigger in Long Island. Really? They were they were all sea runs. Daniel Webster caught a 14 pounder. Wow on the Cairns River in, in Long Island. And they were all sea runs. Basically, they were winter run. They would wait till the stripers and bluefish left, mm-hmm. and then they would go out into the sound. Good move. But they were, yeah, you would exactly. want to swim out as a trout, swimming out there in a school of bluefish. Yeah. That's like... That wouldn't, that wouldn't go well. No. Especially a succulent brookie. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, but, a trout is so soft and, and, and mushy, and, and a bluefish is and just And spineless. Like, <laughs> a bluefish is just a badass, man. I mean... Total Cuisinart with fins. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and I got to fish in Oklahoma and I got to fish. You know, one of the places I really fell in love with, speaking of Oklahoma, were was the Ozarks. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I was I was a rep throughout all this time that I've been making, you know, films and TV shows. Um, I had started a, a company that was in the fly fishing business. And we had the ultimately the largest territory of any reps in the business. Hmm. In that uh, our territory went all the way from Salt Lake City to New Orleans. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. That's so, a big, huge territory. Texas too, huh? Whole enchilada. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. And north throughout the Ozarks. And it was fabulous. Um, so I got to fish all these wonderful places in Texas and in Oklahoma and in Arkansas. Arkansas, I just love. You know, the, it, it's a lot of our favorite things about the Southeast. Mm-hmm. This amazing uh, foliage and canopy and tremendous amount of water, though the gradient is a little bit higher and the water clarity in the Ozarks is higher than almost any other place in America. Hmm. I mean, the water, it is just like floating in an aquarium. Wow. It's like, you know, it's like literally there's a lot of rivers in the Ozarks that look like Silver Springs Wow, in Florida. A lot. Full of trout? Um, you know, in places, yeah, full of trout like crazy on the White River and the Norfolk and stuff like that. And then other places, uh, stripers and gar and mm-hmm. bass and white bass. So and you didn't you buffalo. didn't get to you didn't get to experience all of those fish. I mean, when you you strike me as a guy that wants to catch all of those fish. And now you are the the host of of Trout Unlimited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how did how did First of all, how did that happen? How did you get that hosting gig? Um, they, you know, they, um, they had they had done the show with Tim Linehan as a host for a while, and they decided to redo it. And Barrett Productions, which was based out of Missoula, mm-hmm. 
whom I knew because of the fly fishing masters. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd been doing that for a couple of years and had the good fortune to win and place in that. Um, and they were like, do you want to do, do you want to do this Trout Unlimited gig? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And, you know, and it was, it was definitely a, an incredible experience. I learned a lot. I was, I was a producer on that as well. You know, there was definitely some times where I, uh, you know, some of those other great species that I really appreciate got left on the cutting room floor because we were focusing on trout, which, you know, that's understandable. There was one time I caught this beautiful, we were on one of the spring creeks in Long Island, caught this beautiful largemouth in brackish water in a spring creek in wild trout fishing (laughs) in Long Island under the Long Island freeway. And so kind of, you know, uh, sort of in a Sopranos type accent. I was like, hey, I didn't think I'd find anything under here except Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, that, yeah, that one, that one didn't, didn't make the final edit, but um, anyhow, it was a great fish nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so you get that gig and, and go per 39, that's what, three years? Yeah. <laughs> and then what, what caused you to move on from that? Well, you know, um, a, a bunch of different things. So the main one being really, I was really getting kind of stir crazy because between repping and the show, I was, you know, I was just starting to miss out on, you know, my daughter was yeah. at that point uh, one, and you know, it was starting to, it was starting to really. When I took the show, my wife and I were just dating, and then by the third year, um, we had had Mally, and it was, it was on, and I was, you know, I was just so smitten with her, and and you know, and it turned out that that I wasn't only born to to fish i was really born also uh to be a father and you know it was you know it was like a tractor beam i just i had to i had to be with them as much as i could and it was it was you know the repping thing didn't allow enough of that either um but i was able to you know be there a lot more yeah i wasn't doing the show anymore that's so important and and uh Kudos to you for realizing that in time. A lot of people realize that in hindsight, they should yeah should have uh, worked less and spent more time with the family. That's it's so important. You'll never regret that time that you that you spend with your family like that. But you have all these great fishing opportunities and international opportunities. And I remember um, I kind of just just had gotten my little international thing going, and I had gone to Christmas Island and Australia and and uh a few other trips and i just realized i could i could go anywhere all i gotta do is tell my clients that i've got this trip going and it will fill up and i can go anywhere and all of a sudden i just didn't want to anymore like right i just didn't want to i just wanted to stay home and you know luckily plenty of fishing at home but that's a a revelation of not feeling like you missed out but feeling like wow i really don't want to do that right now I'll yeah. do that later. I, you know, it, it got, you know, where I physically, you know, couldn't. Yeah. Just, you know, I couldn't. Well, that's awesome for you and, and, uh, and so good for your family. And, you know, and it was a surprise. I got to the fatherhood thing uh, uh, a little bit late, but could not be happier to have made it to this one. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, so does she like to fish? I haven't really pushed it on her very much. She, uh, she's definitely caught some fish. Uh, she loves to net them. Yeah. You know, our sort of, uh, 
She, we call her Net Girl. Well, she's like, Daddy, you only catch some of them. I get to catch them all. Yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> see, now when I say, does she like to fish? I don't necessarily equate that with, does she like to turn the handle and reel them in right. or cast for them? And, and that was one of the things that was the best thing that I probably did with, with my own kids. And it was really easy in, in Key West. I would make sure the live well was full of something alive. Like it could be crab, shrimp, pinfish, pilchards, whatever. And, and the, my, they would my play youngest with those? son just, he, he had his head in the live well the whole day, right? <laughs> like he just had his head down in there and of he just loved it. And, you know, some people would be like, don't, doesn't he want to fish? It's like, he is fishing. Yeah. Like this is fishing. Yeah. Like this whole thing. That's like a great, he, that's a great watched, way to put it. That's a great way to put it. He watched us do all of this stuff. And now he knows there's, there's 50 rods on this boat. He could pick one up and fish. He knows he could do that, but he'd rather have his head stuck in the live well. And guess what? He's learning all kinds of stuff about those fish or the cra crabs or the shrimp. I mean, he's just sitting there looking at them. Turns out he turns into an amazing artist later in his life. And, really? And yeah, I swear, I believe, I believe that was a big part of it. Of just it is that being Turner? able to examine. That's actually Hayden, uh -huh. but just being able to examine all of these things, these, and we'd catch a crazy fish and I'd throw it in the live well for a little while. And, and, <laughs> you know, he'd look at it and for observation, it, it, and he'd net it and pick it up and look at it. And, and, uh, and, and I was kind of thinking, you know, I don't know if fishing is, is his thing, but then it was later in life that he came back to it with a, vengeance man i mean he goes after it now and loves it but i don't know i tell parents all the time like if your kids aren't if they like to go that's the big thing yeah if they go and they don't want to fish man don't, great don't, if you're I'm, trout yeah, fishing and they would rather throw rocks awesome just have them throw rocks somewhere where yeah, you're not different fishing, direction, right? Different, just, in the other guy's pool. Like, exactly. Throw them down there. <laughs> Dead Uncle William. Or, or just look at <laughs> look under the under the rock and see all the different bugs or whatever. Or 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 like my daughter, she when she was a kid, I'd take her trout fishing and she liked to paint herself with mud. She'd put put mud all over her face and her legs and stuff. And we'd come back home and she'd be all muddy. She loved that. But that is fishing. Like that, it's the whole act of getting out there, going doesn't have anything to do with catching a fish. Yeah, and really observing the things that are going on either next to or in this this whole other world. Right. That's that, you know, and that uh, I want Mallory to be a fisher girl at some point, but I'm not going to force it upon her. I'm I I'll let that happen and the fact that she loves to she can row a boat now and Man. she's yeah, nine and can yeah. row row my dories. And, well, that's better anyway. Yeah. You get to fish. Well, you know, I, I don't really, you know, like, okay, daddy's going to slip up into the bow right now, honey. <laughs> Actually, um, for the first time while I was down here, just, uh, just about, uh, it was in November, we were all down here in Atlanta. And uh, while she was rowing on the Chattahoochee, uh, she was rowing the boat. Uh, my mom and my wife were in the boat and I caught a nice fish from the bow. And that's awesome. let me tell you something. That was one of the most sublime moments of my entire existence. And, yeah. You know, there've been a lot of good ones to compete with that. And anyhow, that was really well, I, I know. I, when you told me that, I have this image in my mind of a picture that's framed upstairs and it's me hugging my daughter with a, with, with a rod held high bent on the Snake River with the Tetons in the background. And I'm giving my daughter a kiss on the head 
and she's kind of doing that thing where she, you know, kind of <laughs> oh, like, kind of likes it, but doesn't, you know, doesn't want to look, wants to look cool. And it was this day, like I had decided a long time ago that I was going to propose to my wife on the Snake River. We were going to go dead man's to moose and we were going to stop right there under the Tetons and I was going to propose to her. So I've got the ring, I've got everything. She comes out and it's this day in October and you know what October's like in the Rockies. I mean, it could be beautiful. It could be snowing sideways, right? And so that day it was snowing sideways. And so I'm just, I'm like, well, today's the day. Like I have to do this. And so I did it just at her house and I just asked her to marry me. And she said, yes. And it all worked out fine. But like, that was one of my regrets that I didn't give both of us this experience of, because back then no one would have been on that river. It would have been a challenge to get a shuttle. Like, I mean, a serious challenge, like nobody's running shuttles in October on the Snake River back then. So we would have been the only one. that No Uber. Right. There's no Uber. There's no, no Uber shuttle. That would be a good business. I do it. Wow. All, I do it all the time in, wow. in, in Atlanta when I, nice. when I guide down there, I get my shuttles run <laughs> you by just Uber. Want to be dropped off here. Yeah. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. This right is here. good. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, we didn't okay, go, as, man. We, we didn't go as far to the right place, but we'll Uber our way out. Of right. It. That's a good idea. It works. Um, so anyway, um, on our 20th anniversary, uh, well, close to the 20th anniversary, a couple, couple of seasons, summers ago, I took all the kids out there. I, uh, I hired two guides. We have two boats. We float down to that exact place. And I've got my kids there. And I told the guides exactly what I was going to do. And I was like, well, when we stop on this particular gravel bar, you guys just go over there and just make lunch. And I'm going to propose to my wife, repropose to her. And so hmm. I get down on my hands and knees and I give her this, this, other ring that goes on there right in front of the Tetons, right in front of my kids. And then we float it off of that drift, off of that gravel bar. I catch a fish and I give my daughter that hug that I'm talking about, uh, that picture that as soon as you said that, I just had that image. I mean, cause you said that was like one of the greatest moments of your life. And I'm, I mean, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I know that moment, yeah. like that's incredible. Like you've got all the people that mean the most to you in the world right there. You're doing the thing that you love to do more than anything. And you're in this place that you love more than any other. Like it all comes together and just, it, it's, it's powerful. Well, and you know, that's the, that's the thing about fishing. The only thing better than fishing is sharing it. Right. And the only thing better than sharing it is sharing it with, you know, ever more meaningful people. Right. Or people that really appreciate it. Like that's the thing about being a guide, I think, is that you're just, you're just constantly helping people to realize these goals and dreams and, and, and visions that they've had for their, for, you know, maybe it's there to sit there at their job and just think about, man, I'm going to go there one day and I'm going to catch this fish. And then it happens and then you just see it. It's like, the best. It's just, I love that. I love watching that yeah. light bulb go on and just. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're about to wrap this up anyway. So I got a couple questions. First of all, what's your favorite fish? It's still a rooster fish, Tom. Rooster fish. Yeah. And the, and the way of catching them, like you did that Sea of Cortez thing. Oh, yeah. And on the foot. way of catching them is on foot. Yeah. Favorite. And you know what, Tom? That is, that is a fish and a scenario that was made for you, my friend. Yeah, I know. Except you're a right-hander. Yeah. Well, that makes a difference. It's a left-handed fishery. Oh, why? Because uh, the wind blows that way all the time? When it's best. 
Yeah. Can I no. bla- can I backhand it? I don't know. I don't can know you? <laughs> I, d- I did that running. It's- I did that running after the fish before in Christmas Island. They uh, for there GTs. Was a, there was a big GTs, and Mo- I was fishing with Moana and uh, just an idyllic situation and, a, and an iconic guide. And, and mm-hmm. he puts me in this situation and I was training for a marathon at the time. And so I was in really good shape. And, and uh, he's like, well, they're going down there. And I was like, let me out. And I just ran down in front and, and, and threw it out there. And the freaking GT, as big as you, comes right up to the rod tip and turns and soaks me. And then I run down the beach again and get in front of them again and throw it out there again. And then I run down there again and I never hooked them, but it was just so awesome. I mean, I must have run two and a half miles to try to get in front of this fish and they can swim a lot faster than you think. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. GTs cruise at an average real fast. Really fa- They look like they're not even moving, but you start they, running they, and trying yeah, to get exactly. in front of them. They and fly. They, you know, I mean, you need to be faster than me. Uh, but I would love that. Like the whole Baja situation and the whole, that whole thing just looks amazing to me. And then the dirt bag camping and all that just, it just looks awesome. Okay. And it's, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful culture. You know, it's, it, there's, you know, there's a lot of the, our favorite parts of another country there. And we didn't even get to talk about Dubai and, and well, yeah, uh, Queenfish. Du- Dubai and Queenfish were great. You know, Queenfish are wonderful. They are, they are very much related to permit and roosterfish. Mm-hmm. It's more of a jack mackerel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got the scutes on top and bottom going back. You've probably caught a few leather jackets here well, and there. Yeah, they look a lot. They look like a twenty-pound leather jacket. That's what they are. Except they don't have that fin, that nasty-ass fin that faces forward. Sure, and they get you every time. Sure, they, they do. do. Oh because yeah, because I didn't notice that one. I, I have caught queenfish. It, the, the, um, the scary one on them is is the it's down the, low. the anal fin, right? Yeah, and it'll it, mess it, you up. Yes, that one is bad. But I didn't notice the ones coming out the the top. But um, I did catch those in in Australia. Had mm-hmm. a really good experience with queenfish, and I thought they were amazing. And and there are a few different kinds. The ones in Dubai, the Tulang queenfish, That's are the one l- I caught. Oh, the, in in Australia. Okay, yeah. there you go. What's um, the other one? There, there's there's four or five different ones uh, that are you know range in size from the moderate size ones that you catch in Christmas Island that are three or four pounds yeah, yeah. to the big Tulangs, and then there's five or six others in between. Mm-hmm. There's some that are on the west side of Baja. Wow, that's a widespread fish like a jack. Yeah, you know, and they're, they're not a bazillion of them in most places, but Dubai and, you know, the uh, the Gulf, the Arabian Sea is uh, is really where uh, there are a ton of them. That was uh, my, and, you know, my, my a, great experience with the queenfish. We were, in, we were in Australia and we just, I had never caught one before. We go to this river mouth and... We're catching them on fly, on spin, on top, on bottom, on jig, on everything we had in the tackle box. And I'm picking this fish up and I'm going, wow, that seems like a really big one of these, whatever it is. And the guy's like, that's queenfish, mate. And yeah. so I'm like, well, I don't know how big they grow, but this seems like a big one. Like just, you, you just feel the, the body of it. You look and you're like, that looks like a full grown fish. So we catch them all the way up until lunch and we go back to the mothership and there's an IGFA record book there. And we had weighed a couple and Fitz Coker's with me and Dottie Ballantyne. And I go through there. I'm like, Fitz, everything we're catching is a world record. Every single one. We can go up and down the line class. And Dottie Ballantyne decided that she wanted to try it because we, like I said, we caught them on every fly we had, every lure. We caught them on bait casters, on spinning rods, on everything. 
So we were bored with it and we're going to move on to do something else, anything else. And I said, why don't we tie up a couple of leaders and we'll try it? Because the Boga Grip was was IGFA certified. And so we went there and she caught two and I caught my only two world records I've ever caught were Tulane Queenfish. Is that right? Yeah. And cool. uh, I'll show you the certificate in there. And um, how big? How big were they? How big was the one? We'll have to look at the certificate. It was pretty good size, like fourteen pounds or something. Okay. Okay. I think both of the records have been beaten now. But anyway, I was right. Like I was like, this seems like a really big one. And we could have just—they were huge in that place. And Dottie Ballantyne, that was her first world record. And then she liked it so much that they went back to the keys, and she's in. She's um, set over a hundred records now. Starting on that. Starting with a queen. Starting with that queen. Is that right? Well, yeah. uh, wow. it was super fun. Okay. So real quick, we're, we're going to talk about that another time, I guess. We're going to have to have you back and, and do, the, do the Dubai thing because I'm super interested in Dubai. It's just such a freaky place. And yes, it, it is. seems like Las Vegas, like times a hundred. Mm-hmm. Five McLarens at every stoplight. And a butt, you know, you stop, you don't even count the Porsche turbos. And, and then the, the fishing. I is count Lamborghinis. Uh, the fishing is insane. And, and to tell you the truth, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's, it, It's really interesting in that, you know, all of the development that they've done in the building of the islands, and actually they moved an entire coral reef. They created all that of these different environmental, environmentally conscientious technologies that have actually enhanced uh, the fish carrying ability of the area. And the film that we did um, actually, we, we go out with some of the traditional fishermen in an Arabian Dow, this wonderful 80-year-old captain, nice. and you know, set fish traps. And I went in and wrestled about a 40-pound Kobe out of the fish trap. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. And the Kobe <laughs> there are the same. Yeah, that's yeah. what was in, in Australia, too. Really? really? We, we caught all these different fish, and there were some that were, like we caught one that was similar, like the barramundi is similar to a snook. snook and yeah. the, and the, they had this tarpon-like fish, and then they had the, the permit, which is close but not the same and they had all these fish that were similar but the cobia was the only one that was exactly the same same. it was the same fish nice having uh, a friendly face yeah hey it's (laughs) funny seeing you here oh and you ate you ate that jig thanks same thing and we ate we're gonna eat you um now we actually let that one go because they had this other fish called us that they called a spanish mackerel but it was more like a it was like a a 35 pound um Ciro mackerel really uh-huh. is what oh, it was. So like the Ciro is the best of all the mackerel. Right. You can have the Spanish and you can have the king in my opinion. The, right. the Ciro that on our coast is really amazing. They had these that were the size of kingfish, but they had the meat of a Ciro mackerel and they called them Spanish mackerel. Wow, That's yum. what we ate most of the time. It was amazing. All right, real quick. Three things you like to do outside of fishing. Mountain bike, snowboard, and Search for edible mushrooms. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Yeah, it's really... psilocybin mushrooms. No, no, just... not not tripping mushrooms, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the neat thing about Colorado is that you know we've got all these ribeyes laying on the forest floor yes. everywhere, and I, I like to cook also. And uh, these mushrooms are absolutely as good of as good. If you like mushrooms, uh, they're as good at eating now, as the best steak you've ever had. Are they? Are there several different kinds? Because I remember on there the South are, Fork. This guy brought this big puffball mushroom. Oh, yeah. He cooked it like a steak. Right. And, and, and it was, was it good? Amazing. Right. It was so good. I still remember it. it We've got just those. Just like you said, it tastes We've, like a steak. We've and got those. And then you have the uh, morels. Got those. And the people that search for those morels, that's like a little cult. 
Like it they are is. so into it. Well, and you know, one of the things I love about it is like I take my, I take my, me and my wife and my daughter will go up and like if if we're like, hey, Mally, let's go for a let's go for a three mile hike or a four mile hike, uh-huh. she'll be like, no. Right. It's like, hey, let's go hunt for mushrooms. And I mean, we're five miles into it and she's still leading. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing way for the family to get out into the forest. I'm not starting to get drawn into some fishing yep. thing somewhere, which trust me, that, that becomes a theme at some point. But then you point. go home and you cook. Right. And I As go a home. family. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so, so I love, and I'm still learning about it and I, I don't venture off of the path of the, the known mushrooms. But it's it, it's a wonderful avocation, and I've got a lot to learn about it. But it, it it's been a wonderful thing to have picked up here in the last uh, five or six years. That's super cool. Yeah, and I love the cooking aspect because there's such a such a uh, a push now for everybody to know where their food comes from and to gather their own food or kill their own food, and and I love it. I think it's awesome. Me too. Most people don't know where their food comes from, but uh, the cooking aspect and doing that with your daughter, she'll she'll have that. I mean, she might not admit to liking to cook until oh, she she's like she 20, loves to cook but with she me. will later. It's like yeah. the fishing thing. Like, get them started early, and then they may go away from it, but they tend to come back. Do you want to know? Do you want to know the best thing to saute your mushrooms in, Tom? Yeah, it's a surprise. So you know how, like, you had a martini party decades ago, and you've got that stupid bottle of vermouth, uh-huh. dry vermouth, hanging out in your house. One time we ran out of red wine or sherry or stuff like that to saute our mushrooms in. And of course, there's that, there's that green bottle of uh, dry vermouth. Uh-huh. And so anyhow, we end up cooking mushrooms in it. And it is so much better than anything you've ever cooked really? your mushrooms in that uh, you need to know about it. That's the place. Does it flame up? It does. It does. It's got I a would... very satisfying, <laughs> slightly greenish flame. Yeah. With, and the edges are purple. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not too sweet. It's got a unique taste relative to wine. It's very complimentary to a lot of the, you know, neat flavors of the uh, mushrooms that I collect. And uh, yeah, it's just... So when you're cooking the mushrooms, surprise. what do you put them with? Simple, simple, you know, uh, good Irish butter, some good garlic or shallots. You know, typically that's about it. You I don't really, like pair it with a meat or, or oh, anything? I, you know, I, I will, but I, I will tend to cook the mushrooms separately and then I'll put the mushrooms atop uh, the meat or, you know, alongside that or some, you know, sometimes some regional potatoes where mm-hmm. I live in Colorado has wonderful potatoes, surprisingly mm-hmm. good potatoes. They're so good by themselves. A lot of times you, you don't even need meat. Right. You know, that's the reality. Yeah. That was my experience with that one one mushroom that I ate, and puff I don't typically like mushrooms. Tough, but puff but I love those. Amazing. They were so good. Yeah. It was so good. He put butter on it, salt and pepper, and like here, and it, you would have thought you were eating steak. Exactly. It was amazing. Yeah. It was absolutely amazing. We'll come out, we'll go, come out, and we'll go uh, hunt mushrooms. I'm and for it. Catch some cutthroats. It's another neat thing. Whenever you're looking for cutthroats in the high country, there are always mushrooms about. That's the place, huh? All right, let's I have do some, it. I have some stashes. Let's do it, man. Well, thanks so much for coming, and, and it's really good to see you again. Thanks, I look Tom. forward to getting back and doing some more fishing with you. Siempre. All right. All right. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you got something out of that. Got just a little bit of news. We have started a weekly show that is designed to be up-to-the-minute videos of what's happening this week mostly in the Florida Keys, but also in other places that we fish as well. We'll be putting that out every week. And the best way to find that is to subscribe to the YouTube channel, YouTube slash Saltwater Experience. 
Search Saltwater Experience on YouTube. Subscribe to that channel and you will get updates of when a new video is published. I've also figured out how to put the podcast on YouTube, finally. A lot of people like to put that window behind other things they're working on and listen to the podcast while they are working. So we now have that for you. And there is a playlist called Podcast. There's a playlist called Weekly Show. You can go and see all the new videos that we're putting up there. Started a new email address specifically for this show. And that is podcast at saltwaterexperience.com podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. Those emails come directly to me. I'll see every single one of them. So if you have comments, suggestions, ways we can make the show better, and particularly if you have suggestions of someone you would like to see me sit down with in the hunting world, in the fishing world, in the outdoor sports world, or just a motivation, inspirational character, or someone that can teach us all something. I'm very interested in your suggestions. So that's podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. You can get the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and we're also publishing it on the blog. The weekly show will be published on the blog too, but the best way is to go to YouTube, subscribe there, and you'll get it immediately when it's published. So until next week, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.